Hello and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, the essential selection of the week's science stories. I'm Penny Sarche. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. This week we're going to consider if GPT-4 really is going to change the world, which, uh, as we'll hear, some people are saying that. We're also, and with equal weight to changing the world, going to discuss why dormice have luminescent fur. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, we also have an extraordinary story about what Botox may do to the way you perceive emotions. And we're hearing about a quantum effect that might have implications for chemistry and even life on Titan, Saturn's moon. But we're going to start with the climate crisis. Earlier this week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its sixth synthesis report. To talk about this, we're joined by our reporter, Michael LePage. And Michael, it just feels like Groundhog Day all over again, right? Yes, uh, it is sort of the same thing again. And, and of course, with good reason. I, I mean, frankly, what we've been seeing around the world recently with just 1.1 degrees of warming uh, terrifies me, like the 40 degrees uh, Celsius heat wave we had here last summer. And of course, it's just going to get hotter. Uh, this synthesis report warns yet again that without immediate and massive emissions reductions, limiting global warming to 1.5 degree isn't going to happen. And yet they're still towing this line that 1.5 degrees is within reach, even though at this stage, I mean, you'd, you'd basically need a magic wand to get emissions down fast enough, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I mean, well, to be fair, yes, technically it's still possible if we went all out for it. Uh, unfortunately, there just doesn't seem to be any prospect of that happening. The sense of urgency that I think was there a few years ago maybe seems to have been lost to some degree because of the Russia-Ukraine war and the cost of living crisis, even though both of those, should actually, they've shown the benefits of relying on renewables rather than fossil fuels and should be reinforcing action. Mm, and I guess it's always worth saying, even if we miss the 1.5 limit, the next best one is 1.5 plus the tiniest amount on top of it, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So where are we at the moment then with current policies? What kind of warming are we actually heading for? Uh, with current policies, we're heading for between 2.2 and 3.5 degrees of warming by 2100. And the planet will continue to warm after that. So uh, trying to look on a positive side, that's less than we're heading for a decade ago. There has been some action, just not nearly enough. Obviously, 2.2 degrees would be catastrophic, let alone 3.5. And the other thing I should say is that 2.2 to 3.5 is just the likely range. It's not the possible range. If we get unlucky, it could be even more than 3.5 degrees. I saw one of the authors uh, saying this is a call to arms, which is another thing I've heard uh, many times before. And the chair of the IPCC, Ho Sung Lee, he said, money can't solve everything, but it's critical to narrowing the gap. We need three to six times more than current levels of financing. And we've talked about financing a lot. Is there any sign of we, you know, we're getting this? Because as you say about renewables, governments should be looking at what they might have to pay and thinking actually, we need to pay now to save money in the future. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, my impression is most politicians don't really grasp those issues. They don't understand the long term consequences of climate change or what mm. it's going to cost, such as the results of lots of sea level rise over the coming centuries. I mean, I remember last year when Rishi Sunak is now our prime minister, started talking about recycling when he was asked about global warming. Yeah. And of course, the politicians in charge today are, are not going to be around in just a decade or so when we hit 1.5 degrees with, with all that entails. 
Now, the IPCC synthesis report this week was big news, but it, it is a bit unusual, isn't it? Because it, it's just summarising previous reports that have already come out. Is there nothing new in it? No, this this is really just a summary of all the, the previous reports. But I, I do like some of the aspects that the IPCC has chosen to highlight in its press release and in the summary. So, for instance, they make it clear that we need to get serious about adapting to a hotter world as well as trying to limit further warming. We've got to do both. Adaptation tends to get rather overlooked. And they've also highlighted the fact that climate action can have much wider benefits if it's done right. So, for instance, you know, we can have cheap electricity, we can have cleaner air, we can have a fairer society, we can help protect nature on top of limiting further warming. Yeah, and it's really important to emphasise those positive things. We might get a better world. Uh, Here's hoping. Um, So uh, working on the news desk, it feels like there's an IPCC report every few months. But actually, the next ones won't be coming along until 2027 at the earliest. That seems quite a long way away. A lot could happen before then. Yes. uh, I mean, I think my personal view is we need action, not more reports. So it's now blazingly obvious that warming is having disastrous effects all around the world. The the impacts are even worse than we feared for this level of warming. There's absolutely no doubt it's going to get much, much worse if we hit two degrees, let alone three degrees. And we also know what we've got to do now to limit emissions. We've got the tools. We've just got to get out there and do it. Okay, Alex Wilkins is with us in the pod. Alexia, you're here to talk about AI um, and GPT-4. So this is the uh, latest iteration of, of OpenAI's large language model, isn't it? It's been out for a couple of weeks now, and it's been doing some absolutely astonishing things as far as I see on Twitter. Um, so let's talk about this. But first of all, let, you know, remind us what it is and, and how it's different from ChatGPT, which we heard a lot about recently as well. Yeah, absolutely. So ChatGPT, everyone's familiar with it by now. Um, I think it's got like hundreds of millions of users um, and it's only been out for something like six months, which is crazy. But the model that powers it basically is called GPT. The model that it's been powered by so far is GPT 3.5 and lots of people are very excited about its successor, GPT 4. And we finally got to see what it's like and, and what it can do. In terms of what people see, there's not much different. It's still the same interface when you use it on ChatGPT. It's it's just a, a different model powering it, but it's much more advanced. Um, there's so much we don't know about the model. Um, unlike previous papers, there's been very little information about how it was trained, how much processing power was used to train it. OpenAI says they didn't want to do this both because of competition and because they didn't want people to potentially build their own versions because because it was dangerous, but it sort of goes against the name now because they're yeah. called OpenAI, but they're not really saying what they're doing. But we, we do know it's much, much more powerful. It seems to be better at reasoning on quite a few tasks. It, it can remember previous answers much further back. You can give it much more text, up to 25,000 words, and you get a similar amount out. And it can understand pictures as well. That's a really interesting thing. Um, it, you can give it a picture, it says what's going on in it, and you can interact and ask it questions and use it in the whole sort of workflow but the the picture um, feature isn't quite out yet because they're still testing it. Can you give us some specific examples then of of uses that you've seen that have just really impressed you? Yeah so the the feature that OpenAI really highlights is how good it is at human exams. They tested it on loads of different human exams and got very impressive scores and one example they frequently cite is that on a simulated bar exam for lawyers it tests in the top 10% of test takers, whereas the previous model, GPT 3.5, 
only scored in the bottom 10%. Bill Gates of Microsoft fame, because Microsoft and OpenAI are sort of tied tied together. Um, he got a preview at Civilities a few months ago. And when he saw its performance on a biology exam for US high school students, he said that he thought he had seen the most important advance in technology since the graphical user interface, uh, wow. which, of course, now we all know is Microsoft in the 1980s. One of the things that really caught my eye was actually in a live demo that OpenAI did. Their CTO, Greg Brockman, um, showed a piece of paper that he'd scrolled a website design for just with a few bullet points saying, joke website, press button here. And it was just like a rough sketch. He fed that into GPT-4. It took the sketch and he said, can you code this into a full website for me? And it, it did it in seconds. Uh, he put the code in. Website was working just from putting a few bits of scraps of paper in. Wow. So what's your impression? Is it going to be as transformative as people say? It's really hard to say. It feels like we're a bit in a, a moment sort of like the iPhone when, when that came out, where everyone was surprised, but they weren't quite sure if it was going to catch on. OpenAI actually put out a report or a paper a couple of days ago where they thought that at least 20% of workers will have 50% of their work tasks impacted by GPT-4. And that it's this, um, in economics, they talk of these general purpose technologies, which will affect every single industry. And they were saying that it, it seems to be one of these, um, similar to like the car or the printing press. But wow. there are obviously still reasons to be skeptical for all the same reasons as the predecessor models have. Uh, it doesn't really know when it's wrong. Uh, it can make really basic arithmetic and logical mistakes. And it still makes stuff up and, and sounds sure about what it's making up. It's sounding sounding quite human in that respect. Yeah, um, no, definitely. I mean, and, and on that, it has got this extraordinary ability to reason at quite high human level, hasn't it? I mean, some people are claiming theory of mind from it. What's going on there? Yeah, so so people have been testing it with sort of fairly basic and more advanced sort of logical tasks. And it, it seems to have about the level of logic of like a young human child. And that is one reason maybe that it's it's so good at passing these exams. But it's really not clear what it's doing under the hood. Like the, the high level explanation is that to answer questions that are given to it as accurately as possible, and from the data it's been trained on, it might be building these sort of models of logic in, inside its um, its network of nodes and parameters and its statistical engine. Mm. Um, but we have no idea what's going on inside them. They're basically black boxes. Researchers have shown that it can actually answer the same test that we use to test with theory of mind in about the age of sort of eight or nine. And, and that was already the case with GPT 3.5 which is impressive and obviously unprecedented with any other technology we've had before. But it's still a bit of a stretch to say that these models are display theory. Are conscious. Are yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That yeah. They are still just statistical text generators, yeah. with, with yeah. that word just being uh, the key thing there. Now, Alex, I saw Max Tegmark um, of MIT saying that we should be concerned that GPT-4 could accelerate the development of super-intelligent computers because of its coding ability. What about that? What is that something we should be start getting worried about? Well, actually, funny enough, overnight, um, a paper came out from a group of Microsoft researchers, and they had early access to GPT-4. So they've been testing it for months on all sorts of different kinds of tasks, from sort of basic logic tasks to more complex math tasks to visual tasks. And they've said something quite interesting, actually. That They said that they've, in GPT-4, they've seen the first sort of sparks of artificial general intelligence. Now, this is something that's wow. probably debated. In, yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's quite a, a stunning statement, really. It's important to bear in mind that Microsoft is sort of tied in with OpenAI, so it is in their interest to say that. But 
even so that they're saying that it's sort of it's definitely not at human level for everything yet and has some significant shortcomings but in in certain areas like coding and reasoning it seems to be approaching this this human level and, and they're saying this is sort of a a bit of a cliche but a sort of paradigm shift in the world of machine learning where this model now can actually do things that we don't quite understand how it's doing it or, or why it's doing it so it's it definitely seems to be of a different kind than GPT 3.5 and, and chat GPT that, that came before and just to give a few examples of some of the things it can do it, it can navigate through maps that the researchers gave it purely in text and sort of describe what it sees at each point in the map it can describe mathematical proofs in the language of Shakespeare and it, it, it can uh, answer all sorts of difficult and complex coding questions it's an over a hundred page paper and it's full of examples so um, I really recommend people checking it out because it's, it's quite surprising. Oh, that is, I mean, I think it's, it, it really, if it's showing sparks of artificial general intelligence, so that's the, you know, that's human level intelligence that can, a flexible kind of intelligence that can adapt to all different kinds of things, that really is a paradigm shift. And um, that's very exciting and a little bit scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I keep fluctuating between being terrified and being really quite excited to see what's to come. Let's take a quick break. If you're looking for an exciting science adventure this summer or later this year, take a look at newscientist.com slash tours. I've just got back from a New Scientist tour to Svalbard, and there's a bonus podcast about that, by the way. I can testify that these tours are amazing. Yeah, just listen to these. Tours departing soon include whale watching and marine ecosystems in the Azorean Islands, Portugal. That's in May for seven days. Neanderthal Origins, that's in southern France. Tours are going in June and September and they're each 10 days. And Ancient Caves, Human Origins in northern Spain. Those tours are in June and August and they're each seven days. Places are still available, so go to newscientist.com tours for more information. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, it's life form of the week and assistant news editor Sam Wong is on the pod. Sam, what animal have you got for us? I've got the garden dormouse, which is uh, a small rodent. It's native to Europe. It's uh, brownie grey, black around the eyes. They spend a lot of their life trying not to be seen. But surprisingly, researchers in Estonia have found that if you shine ultra ultraviolet light on them, they emit a kind of bright red glow and their, their feet and nose are blue green. <laughs> so what's going on with that? So this is an effect called photoluminescence. It's when molecules absorb photons, their electrons get excited, and then they re-emit photons in the visible range of the spectrum. It's quite common in marine animals, and it's known in some vertebrates, like insects and millipedes, and it's been found in the plumage of some birds. 
is it unusual in mammals then? And, and you know, how did they find this out? Were they just shining UV light on a bunch of animals to see what happened? <laughs> yeah, well, recently it's been found in a few nocturnal mammals like flying squirrels and spring hares. Uh, so one of the researchers who did this study, Greta Numut at Talen Zoo, made a bet with her colleague that dormice would be photoluminescent too. <laughs> and the, lo- the loser had to bake a cake for the other one. And uh, so they they took some animals from the zoo and they shone UV light on and uh, Greta won her bet. (laughs) So um, obviously the big question here is what kind of cake? (laughs) But also why do we think Dormos do this? I'm afraid I don't know about the cake. I'll have to send our (laughs) our reporter Joshua Learn uh, to do a bit more reporting on that one. Some animals use photoluminescence to signal to potential mates, so it could be something like that. But we don't know if dormice can even perceive these colours in in normal lighting. Other animals, like spring hares, they have a kind of patchy photoluminescence, and it might help to camouflage them in plants that reflect light in a similar way. So that might be the reason. But it's also possible that photoluminescence is it's just a byproduct of something they eat or some other process in their bodies, and it doesn't have a an adaptive reason for it. I was thinking about this, and I think the, the anti-predator one makes sense because we know mammals can't really sense UV, but birds can, and they're predators of dormice. So it might be a sort of radar block or like, you know, like the dazzle camouflage that ships used to have, that sort of mm. disruptive camouflage. And I wondered if that, I wonder if it could be something well, like that. Well, surely the, the birds would, uh, you know, and a barn owl would evolve to detect it. I'm really curious what's yeah, going on be, there. It'd be interesting to set up some experiments uh, on that. up we've got a story about botox when someone gets botox it can be tricky to know what they're feeling because it limits their range of facial expressions but a new brain imaging study suggests that it also goes the other way people who've had botox also find it harder to read other people's emotions rowan spoke to our reporter alice klein to find out why hi alice now it seems obvious that if you get botox then it's going to be harder for people to read your emotions and i always wonder about that with actors actually who've had botox and they're trying to act um <laughs> but why is it harder for someone with botox to read other people's emotions as well yeah so this goes back to something called the facial feedback hypothesis which has been around for about 50 years now and basically it says that we interpret other people's emotions by unconsciously copying their facial expressions. So for example, if you smile at me, then I will also smile. And that kind of helps me to recognize that you're happy. And this, you know, makes sense intuitively, but it's also been quite difficult to prove. But then now we've suddenly got this natural experiment with all these people immobilizing their faces with Botox, which if the facial feedback hypothesis is correct, should affect their ability to identify other people's emotions. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I thought it rang a bell. And actually, it goes back to Darwin. He came up with this idea that um, your own expressions on your face help you interpret other people. But as you say, it's been really hard to test it. So the idea is that if you can't move your face, you know, as much as you would, you know, naturally, and, and that's because you've had Botox, you wouldn't be able to mimic other people's facial expressions and therefore it's harder to to know what other people are feeling. Yeah, and there have actually been some small studies that support this. For example, I found one that tested women before and after they had Botox injections in their foreheads and that found that after they had the Botox, they became slightly worse at identifying facial expressions in photos. 
And then there was also another study I found interesting, which found that after Botox in the forehead, women took longer to read emotive sentences. They took longer to read them. Why would that be? Mm. Well, I think it's because, you know, say you're reading a book and you come across a sentence where the character's getting angry, you might unconsciously frown and that kind of helps you to process what the sentence means. But if you can't frown, maybe, you know, because you can't make that expression with your face, then maybe it takes you longer to understand the sentence. (laughs) Wow. Um, I was frowning as you were saying that and then smiling. Uh, maybe, I know, maybe I've been noticing myself doing this as well. <laughs> yeah. So is there any evidence at a, a brain level that Botox affects like the recognition of emotions? Yeah, well, I think this is where it gets interesting um, because a recent study by the University of California, Irvine, investigated this by actually doing brain scans on 10 healthy women in their 30s before and after they had Botox injections in their foreheads. And while their brains were being scanned, they were asked to look at photos showing happy or angry faces interspersed with neutral images. Okay, and what happened after they got Botox? Well, after Botox, they there were changes in activity in two brain areas that are involved in processing emotions, the amygdala and the fusiform gyrus. When the participants looked at those happy and angry faces, but not neutral images. And the researchers think this is because after getting Botox, the women couldn't mimic the happy and angry expressions that they were seeing in those photos as well as they used to. And because of that, the muscles in their face couldn't send the usual signals to the amygdala and the fusiform gyrus saying, okay, this is a smiling face or this is a frowny face. So that affected the activity in those brain regions. What? So is there a kind of internal mimicking, as it were, of emotions? Because we don't go around gurning at people all the time, do we, like to interpret their emotions? But, you well, know. I think you, you're just unconsciously mimicking these expressions in other people. And yeah, and basically there is this communication between your facial muscles and your brain. And so, you know, Botox is more and more popular. Is this going to become a problem if people, you know, are getting confused about what everyone is feeling? Well, I wouldn't say so because, you know, these are only subtle effects and right. there there are other ways of interpreting someone else's emotions based on either <laughs> what they're saying verbally or their body language. You know, like if someone's yelling at you and throwing their arms around, then you probably don't need to be mimicking their <laughs> facial expressions to recognise that they're yeah. angry. And actually on the plus side, there have been a few small studies showing that getting Botox in the forehead can ease depression in people with major depression, possibly because if they can't frown, then their face can't send as many negative signals back to their brain. So I think one benefit of Botox is that it has really eliminated this interesting relationship between the facial muscles and the brain. And for once, it gives experimental support to this facial feedback hypothesis. That was reporter Alice Klein. And we asked Abvi, who make Botox for comment, but they didn't get back to us. Now it's time for some space with Leia Crane. Leia, you've been following the goings-on at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Houston, Texas, and you've got an intriguing story about how life might find a way on Saturn's moon, Titan. Before we get right into that, just remind us why everybody loves Titan. Because it's the best one. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about Titan is that it's this sort of bizarro Earth. 
It's the only other place in the solar system that we know of that has liquid on its surface, but that liquid isn't water. It's ethane and methane. And then the ground rock, the mountains, a lot of that is made of water ice because it's so absolutely frigid there that water cannot be liquid. And on top of that, it has this big fluffy orange atmosphere that protects its surface, which means that it might be a really good place for life. The unfortunate thing is it is super, super cold. So it's too cold for a lot of different types of chemical reactions on the surface. But these researchers have come up with the idea that that quantum tunneling could help get around that problem. Quantum tunneling. Okay, before we get into that, let's just kind of have a look at what's going on at tit- on Titan. So it, it's, you know, about 179 degrees minus 179 <laughs> degrees Celsius, um, which is, detail. I'm told, minus 290 degrees Fahrenheit. And, mm-hmm. and at those kind of temperatures, I mean, even protons and electrons can't, you know, move from one molecule to another. So no chemistry is happening. It just completely grinds to a halt. It's just, it slows down a lot and and it's much harder to have a chemical reaction just because there isn't any, isn't a lot of heat. There's not a lot of energy available to fuel those chemical reactions. So aside from, you know, unless there's little bursts of heat from meteorite impacts and stuff, there's not going to be a lot of chemistry going on at those temperatures. You know, these chemical reactions are kind of like rolling a ball from one valley into the next one where the ball needs a little boost to get over that hill between them. And that boost is the energy you're adding in. But at low temperatures, there's not enough ambient energy in the environment to sort of push it over that barrier. So is is there another way? There is. <laughs> so uh, the ball can, instead of going over the hill, go through the hill. What? <laughs> um, remember that the hill is metaphorical. Um, so (laughs) that's what happens in quantum tunneling where a particle just sort of passes straight through a barrier that it doesn't have the energy to surmount. It's a quantum probabilistic process. So it's not expected to have happen all that often, but when you don't have other processes happening, it can be really important. But we have found some kind of chemist. There is obviously some chemistry going on in at Titan because you did a story about membranes being found in the atmosphere, right? Not membranes, but like the building blocks of cell of what could be cell membranes. And and like, what is the idea that that just accumulates very, very slowly or in the atmosphere, it's energy from sunlight or something? Yeah. So the atmosphere, it can actually be a lot warmer than the surface because um, it absorbs the sunlight before that makes it down uh, to the surface. So it right. can be 70, 80 degrees hotter which means that chemistry is a lot easier to do up in the atmosphere than it is right. on the surface. And, you know, there is chemistry happening. We know there's lots of complex molecules on Titan, but we're not really sure, for the most part, how they're forming. I do love this, though, because it makes it, it forces you to think about really, really radically different ways that life or chemistry can get going. And a quantum-based life form, <laughs> how, cool, how mad is that? And I wonder, you know, how the timescales might be so different if you're relying on quantum effects. It's something really out there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in in a sense, yes, because these quantum effects don't happen as easily as regular chemistry. Someplace like Earth, that's basically 
set up to be ideal for prebiotic chemistry as far as we know. Mm. Um, on the other hand, everything is quantum based if you think about it really hard. And I'm going to skip right past <laughs> having said that. <laughs> um, so it could be really different on Titan. And this slow sort of occasional quantum process might potentially be the only way that we could get the beginnings of life there. Hmm, hmm. Um, but we really don't know what that would look like. Okay, so Titan, uh, truly alien prospects for life there. But I just want to give a shout out to Jupiter's moons, because April 13th, we're seeing the launch of ESA's JUICE mission, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Um, and that's going to look at some of Jupiter's moons where that you know we think there's liquid water beneath the surface and uh, something much more familiar with there uh, <laughs> that we can get get and have a look yeah, at. They might not be as good as Titan, but they're still pretty good. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests Michael LePage, Alice Klein, Sam Wong, Alex Wilkins, and Leah Crane. And thanks to you for listening. Do subscribe to our show, please, and tell everyone else you know to listen. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.